Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Angel Belgard, Chief Medical Officer at the Bioinformatics CRO, and today I'm joined by Amar Gajar, Chair of the Department of Pediatric Medicine and the Scott and Tracy Hamilton Endowed Chair in Brain Tumor Research at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Welcome, Amar. Thank you, Angel. Good to be here. It's good to have you. So working in St. Jude in pediatric brain tumors, it seems that much of your research focuses on pediatric medulloblastoma, which is among the most common malignant pediatric brain tumors. Can you tell us a little bit about this cancer? Yeah. So when I started and I joined the faculty, that was charge given to me is to develop a medulloblastoma program. And that's what I focused my academic career on for the last almost 25 years. So this is a tumor which occurs in the entire spectrum from infants to the pediatric age group to adolescent young adults, and also very rarely in older adults. We used to treat this disease as if it was a single disease entity, but what we learned painstakingly through all the work that St. Jude investigators and investigators in other big centers like Toronto and Boston in the UK and in Germany have demonstrated that actually medulloblastoma is not a single disease, but a compendium of four very distinct molecular diseases, which have very distinct cells of origin, distinct molecular changes, and very distinct outcome based on our treatment. So we've really built on that theme and really refined and continue to refine our risk model because it has allowed us to reduce therapy for patients which have good outcomes, which do not require high doses of radiation therapy so that we can not only just cure them, but leave them neurocognitively intact so that they can complete their education, go to college, leave independent social and financial lives. So it's a dual mission, curing children, but also curing them in a way that they can be functional uh, adults. Certainly both of those are important. With the molecular subsets that you see, how closely do those line up with the clinical presentations? So the clinical presentation and the molecular subset based on the imaging. So one subgroup, the sonic hedgehog subgroup, the tumors are hemispheric in the cerebellum. The wind subgroup, there's a 85% are in the fourth ventricle. There's 15% of them are in the in the angle or CP angle, as we call it. And then we have group three, group fours, which don't have any predilection for sight. But we can almost say when a child shows up in the ER and has a large hemispheric tumor, it'll be hedgehog. If it's a midline tumor or a CP angle tumor in a older female, pets are going to be, it's going to be a wind tumor. So you get a little bit of inclination on the clinical presentation. In the infants, majority of them are going to be sonic hedgehog. About 65% of them are going to be sonic hedgehog. About the remaining 25-30% will be group three. So, you know, you start at least getting an idea of what you're going to be dealing with before you get the tissue in hand. And prognostically, my, my guess would be that there's some delineation with that too. Yes. So the wind tumors generally do very well. The sonic hedgehogs, based on their molecular features, there's a group which does very well and a group which 
has a inferior outcome. So it's not as simple as just the label. It's again, you have to dig deeper into the molecular characteristic of each subgroup. And then you have to look clinically whether the tumor has spread, whether there's metastatic disease, whether they could get all the tumor out at the time of surgery. So then it just, you start drilling down deeper and deeper till you come up with a comprehensive risk stratification. Tell us a little bit about the risk stratification and how you were able to come up with the adapted radiation therapy for the different groups. Yeah, so currently we are using the lowest dose of radiation therapy for the wind tumors because they do best. We're using an intermediate dose for the ones which are molecularly and clinically good risk. And then we use the higher dose radiation therapy only for the patients which have got high risk disease or metastatic disease. And that study is the first in North America, actually in in the world. And we are watching the numbers very carefully. The study is being monitored by an external data safety monitoring board, just so that the reductions in therapy that we've made, not just radiation and chemotherapy, are not going to adversely impact the outcome for these children. So we've got about 650 patients enrolled on that study, and we'll accrue and for a year or more before we'll open our next study and fine-tune the risk even more. At this point in the study, are you already seeing, based on neurocognitive function following the therapy, are you already seeing differentiation in that? Yes, but there's a big change. We now treat these patients with proton beam radiation compared to photon, which was the older way of treating children. So I think the proton beam children are getting less radiation to the normal brain. And I think that's been a big game changer as far as their neurocognitive outcome. That's fantastic. You have studied, like you were saying, ongoing neuropsychological outcomes for them. Because this is a cancer that can affect children of all ages, how do you assess for those children that are too young to complete neuropsychological testing? Not all of them get the same test. So depending on the age of the child, there are different tools which have been sort of verified as they've been developed. So for the younger children, they use completely different tests. For the older children, adolescents, they use completely different tests. And there are some children who just cannot finish the cognitive evaluations because of the time required and they just can't focus. So we try and sometimes we split the time up to shorter two-day tests, but sometimes parents can't invest the time. They've all got to get onto jobs. So we try to do the best we can for the time we have with the children when they visit the campus. It looks like literacy is a marker that you've used quite a bit to incorporate all the different neurocognitive skills. Can you speak a little bit about that? We, you know, instead of global IQ, we have now split the domains up into processing speed, which we think is the most important sort of feature of cognitive outcome. And that really is the speed at which a child receives information, processes the information, stores the information, and then has the output. And we find that these children who have had radiation therapy at a younger age, their processing speed is slowed down, which then reflects their work output in school and generally with a little bit of adjustment little longer time for their tests and a longer time to complete their homework, the parents invest in the children, they do okay, but it's easier said than done. So, Because the, the school systems have to be accommodating. The teachers also have to understand, you know, because the children look good, but they're just not performing where they should be. And some teachers in the bigger school systems have seen 
children with brain tumors who've had therapy before and they understand, but somewhat in the rural systems, the smaller classrooms are not that much experience. Sometimes the teachers do not completely understand what is going on. I know that there will be great differentiation with this, but do you ever see a neurological catch-up, like a number of years out, at which point you're not seeing significant deficits anymore? No, unfortunately, that doesn't happen. We are working to remediate some of the deficits, and that's a big area of research, which you know investigators at St. Jude and other places are now leading because we've done a lot of work documenting the deficits, but now we're saying, what can we do about it? So I think this is a huge area of research. We are working with the children, with exercise intervention, reading intervention, cognitive intervention. And these are areas which are being actively researched. And also looking into hearing deficits. Yes. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So hearing loss is a big morbidity in these children. So we've been very careful. We've done studies. We've reduced the dose of cisplatin. Uh, again, with proton beam, we are seeing a lower incidence because it is preventing radiation to the middle ear and the cochlea. All little, little things which seem trivial, but then they impact the long-term outcome of the child. So if you're cognitively slow and then you have hearing loss, it's much harder for that child to sit and pay attention and, and get what the teacher is saying. So at least if you can prevent the hearing loss, that's a huge victory. Absolutely. Now, in addition to these neurocognitive outcomes for children who are diagnosed with medulloblastoma, your research also focuses on those children who are unfortunate to have relapsed medulloblastoma? Yeah, unfortunately, we are curing about 75 to 80% of all comers, but there's still 20, 25% whose tumors come back. And, you know, we are trying to devise newer, smarter therapies, and we test them out in the children who have recurrent disease to see whether there's any efficacy. So this is a constant effort which is going on within our group and other large groups in North America hoping to then move some of these therapeutic options in the newly diagnosed or the upfront setting. What molecular subtype observations have you seen between the primary tumors and the relapsed cases? Very good question. So we just published that this year. So a couple of things. If it's a, suppose it's a sonic hedgehog at the first time, it's going to remain sonic hedgehog the second time around, it's when it relapses, it doesn't switch its lineage. What it does do is pick up additional mutations, depending on what test you do, sequencing, or if you do an expression array. The other thing we've learned is that we used to just presume that these tumors were recurrent medullos. There's a percentage of these tumors which are not medulloblastoma, which are gliomas. You know, you can call them subsequent, secondary, radiation-induced and there are some children who are genetically predisposed to develop uh, brain tumors. So I think 10 to 15% of these turn out to be glioma. So one, I think the field has now learned to biopsy these and make sure that you're dealing with a medulla rather than just presuming that it's a medulla. What would you hope to see in furthering your study and where would you branch out next to? Well, we want to cure 100% of these uh, children diagnosed with this tumor. So won't happen in my lifetime, but I wish... My team will continue working and mimic the success in ALL that we've seen when St. Jude opened, 4% of the children had were getting cured, and now we're up to almost 97%. So we've got a room, but when I joined St. Jude, we were curing about 72% of ALL, and now in my lifetime, I've seen a 
25% jump. So we're already at about 75%. So we've got a little ways to go. That's pretty incredible. What do you think are some of the most outstanding questions related to pediatric medulloblastoma? Well, I mean, there are lots of questions as to the molecular makeup. Why is this disease so aggressive? You know, some of the younger age groups where we don't use radiation therapy, so we're really stuck with surgery and chemotherapy. What is the vascular pattern? Why does some tumors tend to metastasize and grow, whereas some tumors like wind tumors very rarely metastasize? So there's a lot of biological questions which we are looking at as we are dissecting these tumors. We know the reason why wind tumors now have such a good outcome because they secrete a chemical which breaks down the blood-brain barrier, so they see a much higher concentration of chemotherapy, so that's why it's uh, very effective. So some of these secrets we're getting to know, and then some of these secrets uh, left to be explored. Among the treatments that are up and coming, it sounds like you're pretty excited about proton beam. Proton beam is a form of radiation therapy. As I said, we hope most of the children in North America will be treated with proton beam. I think the centers are getting more available to the public. They're clustered in a few areas, but they are, do, are expanding. So it's it's a huge advantage, proton beam therapy. Also, surgical resection, the tools available to the neurosurgeons when I started versus the tools available when they're operating today, You know, they have a lot more advantage technically. When I started, there was no MRI. Everybody was using CT scan, and now we're looking at three Tesla MRs, which the anatomical description, the anatomical detail is just absolutely amazing. You can't pinpoint to one thing, but every technological advance, if you can harvest it, will impact your treatment outcome. I'm wondering a little bit about your path into science and into pediatric oncology. At what point did you know that you wanted to become a doctor or a pediatrician or an oncologist? I come from a family of doctors. So I'm third generation and my daughter is a fourth generation. So next year, our family will finish 100 years in medicine. So the fact that I was going to be a doctor, I decided was when I learned to talk, probably. I came to the United States and, you know, I met a mentor of mine who told me, Amar, you need to do pediatrics because you can focus on one disease and you can cure it. Otherwise, you have adult patients that go to obesity and hypertension and lung and this and diabetes and all these chronic morbidities, and then you have to treat everything. Now, of course, when you're 22 years old, such a profound statement like that, you don't understand it. But I knew this man was an incredible mentor and a very, very smart man. So I said, listen, you know what? Listen to what he says. So that's how I went into pediatrics. And then, um, you know, again, focused back. I wanted to do oncology. So as a second year resident, I came to St. Jude, did an elective. And then I said, listen, this is my home. I came back, did my fellowship, Hemong fellowship, and they did a year of neuro-oncology fellowship and joined the faculty. And it did turn out that I folk, I mean, I treat all neuro-oncology, but I focus on one disease. So. Your advice from your mentor really rang true. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you did your medical training at Grant Medical College in Mumbai, is that right? Yes, yes. How different was your experience coming from there and then joining the residency at University of South Florida? In India, the numbers are amazing. I mean, you know, we the population is huge and we look after a lot of patients and we don't have the kind of infrastructure that 
it's available in the United States and I can speak uh, not just India, but a lot of the Asian countries because I travel, I used to before COVID. In the US, we are lucky that we have all this technology to help us and have better results because of that. So certainly working with cancer patients in general can be emotionally taxing as you're talking to families and breaking pretty difficult news on a daily basis. And then more so working with young children. How do you cope with that ongoing? Well, it's difficult. But remember, you know, I've I've been very, very fortunate to have been surrounded by a phenomenal team of people. We are focused and motivated and dedicated to our roles in our team. And I think that makes the burden much lighter, that it's not just one person who makes a difference. It's everybody who's sort of rooting for the success of the team. And I think if I were isolated and working alone in a team which didn't understand or kind of didn't share the vision or the mission, would never be the same. So I mean, if I had to look back at my career and think about what's the most important thing, and I would say my team, nurses, nurse practitioners, my regulatory team, my data managers, research nurses, Kristen, my PR, she holds me accountable. Among your family members, since you come from a pretty extensive medical background in the family, did they do their training also either in the U.S. or in the U.K.? Or? Yeah, all of them. Yeah, my grandfather started and he was in the U.K. He, next year, it'll be 100 years ago that he started his medical school in London. So, Wow. Are any others in oncology or? No, no, they're all pathologists. Oh, really? All of them? I'm, I'm that way, the black sheep. You know, my original idea was to be a hemato-oncologist to have a leukemia practice and have a lab, but that, well, that didn't pan out. Though I did practice ALL for almost 10 years. So, What sorts of advice would you have for people entering the field of medicine today? Perhaps advice that you bestowed on your daughter. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do it for the money. <laughs> Make sure that you love what you do, because if you're doing it for the money, there are many, many smarter ways to become rich. Medicine is not one of them. So. That's true. It seems like a better way to get into debt, right? <laughs> yeah. And for those wanting to move from purely clinical medicine to clinical research, do you have advice for them? Well, I think having the right environment, having the right supportive mentors, and really putting the time and sweat equity into it is something which you've got to think about. It's not all fun and games. And then your family needs to understand what you're committing to and support it. Many a times I feel that people who are lucky enough to have supportive families have a much better chance because it's long hours. I mean, none of this is, I mean, if the idea is at five o'clock on Friday, I'm going to switch off and come back on Monday at eight o'clock. And in between, I mean, I'm, there's a certain amount of time dedication, thinking, reading, I mean, which one has to put in. And I think having family support for that is very important. Over the years, you know, you've talked a little bit about the changes in neurosurgical approaches and the differences in imaging. What other kinds of changes have you seen in the field of medicine during throughout your training? As I said, you know, the supportive care has improved tremendously. I mean, I remember the days when we didn't have the simple thing like antimedics, nausea medicines, and now the children have got so much better control, pain medicines. I mean, we have appropriately used and dispensed long-term pain control. So there's a lot, again, if you start quantifying, there's no one single thing, but there are multiple 
advances which you package together makes a big difference. I mean, remember when I started, we didn't have even growth factor support. So GCSF uh, was something which was new. We really started using it in 1998. It was a new thing. And now we give it uh, the duration of time these children have their counts drop by four to five days, which is huge. Is there anything within the system that kind of shouts out as the next thing that clearly needs to be changed? Well, one of the things we're getting better at, because we're getting so much genomic information on these tumors, we're looking at germline predisposition syndromes, patients which are going to have, because of their genetic makeup, toxicity to certain drugs, adjustments because of the genotype, phenotype correlation. So there's a lot of that advancement and insight that we had just started understanding and approaching. And I think very soon, I mean, the first human genome took two years to sequence, and now we get the result in two weeks commercially. I mean, that time, President Clinton and NCI, and there was a private person attempting to do the same, and Clinton had to go and make peace that they will sequence put the results of those things back to back so that one person wouldn't be a clear winner. And now we just order it as a lab test and within two weeks we have the entire human genome sequence. So you can imagine the pace at which, you know, science and medicine has moved along and uh, the information highway that we are on. And certainly the outpacing potentially of where the forefront of that is and where medical education is along the way. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the current generation of medical students I tell them, the residents, I said, this will be regular sort of clinic talk for you guys at a very basic level. So if we know that you're going to have a bad reaction to this medicine, this will be a report that will alert you right away. Right now, we are are defining all these things. But a point will come when your system will not allow you to even prescribe this stuff. So, Yeah, the concept of precision medicine has really come a long way in just the last 10 years even. Long ways, yeah. Absolutely. What are some common misconceptions about medicine or cancer that you see with your patients or with your trainees? Misconceptions. I mean, in pediatric oncology, the patients are young and families do do a lot of hunting on the internet. And I, in fact, encourage them. I said, you know, do whatever searching you have to do, but then do come back if there's something that you're reading just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. It's not verified. Anybody can put anything on the internet. And I think sometimes it's a relief to these families because it opens up an open dialogue. Now, adult oncology may be very different and they may run off and, you know, but even then we have people who go on vitamin D, orange juice. So, you know, there's all kinds of opinions on chat groups and So it really depends on what these people are reading and who's influencing their thinking. But I find that having an open discourse, opening up that communication channel, you can hold them closer and have an open discussion with them. I give you a common, very common mistake. So they've understood that when you do a PET scan, the tumor is taking off FDG glucose. So they say the tumor is eating glucose. So then they think if the tumor is growing on glucose, why don't we eliminate glucose from the diet of the child? And then they go on this kick and they completely starve this poor patient. And I tell them our body is made to make glucose. 
our brain works on glucose. You may think you're not feeding glucose, but the body will make glucose. And, you know, so try to common sense way sort of guide them so they don't go crazy. So, Or that ketotic diet, they, some of them go on that, you know. And these are the kinds of things that go off on a tangent. But generally, if you talk to them and make them understand, most people will listen. There'll be some people who, you know, then they come in with severe ketones in the urine, they're losing weight uh, because they're feeding them this stuff. So, Yeah, and that's something you definitely want to convey that not all of these things are, are harmless, even though they're nutritional adjustments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, we've had kids with super high levels of vitamin D, and then they're getting renal stones. And I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. Sometimes their LFTs are completely out sky high. And I said, what's going on? And then they're feeding them some herbal tea. And I mean, they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But fortunately, it's the minority. And generally, we catch it. And usually, they settle down. So, Well, wonderful. Aside from medulloblastoma research, your research also focuses on rarer brain tumors as well. Would you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. So again, you know, historically, we used morphology how the tumor looked under the microscope. And commonly, all these tumors are called small round blue cell tumors because they all look very similar. Now we've got molecular diagnostics and molecular tools. So even if they look similar under the microscope, they're molecularly very distinct. So we've got new entities like ATRT, atypical teratoid rhabdoid tumor, ETMR, and other what we used to call supratentorial PNETs into very molecularly distinct. So they look the same under the microscope, but when you start doing the genetics and some of the immunohistochemistry tests, that sort of separates out each distinct entity. And that has, again, helped because ATRTs are in younger children. They have, they have germline predispositions, and they're very aggressive. They are, in turn, made of three molecular subtypes, and we are trying to find specific drugs for each of the subtypes which normally 30 years ago would be all considered medullose. So, you know, all that fine-tuning is coming at a very rapid pace. How widely available is that fine-tuned diagnostic sequence? Is it only available to large institutions? or? Yeah, but most pathologists who don't see the volume will, will send it out for consults. So they know. I mean, you know, uh, big centers which see large volume, it makes sense for them to invest because... They've got enough positive and negative control. They can test their stains. They can test their fish probes. If you're a center which sees, you know, 10 of these patients a year, it doesn't make sense. Less than one a month, it doesn't make sense because you're every time you're going to be shaky, whether this stain is correct, whether it's working or not. So you're almost cost effective to just send it out. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for the opportunity. Good talking to you. Good talking to you as well.